Good morning, everyone. We've had a, you may not be aware, but we've had a few uh, weddings in the last few weeks here at Liberty, which has been really exciting. So it's great to have Kevin and Nancy back from their honeymoon. Yeah. And then on Thursday last week, a few days ago, Goldwyn and Sasha also get married. So they are away enjoying that honeymoon, but we'll be back in a few weeks. So I give them a big high five when they return. Okay, if you want to find uh, Exodus chapter 17 uh, in your Bible, uh, if you don't have one, don't worry because it's right there. So um, we have been working through the book of Exodus over the last year or so, taking a few breaks as we've looked at some other subjects. And last week, we were in uh, the kind of the end of chapter 15 through the start of chapter 17. And we kind of ran through three sort of quick fire scenes of God's, uh, of part of the story of what was happening there. So first of all, the end of chapter 15, uh, you see uh, the people of God, they're now through the Red Sea, uh, they're out into the wilderness, uh, and they suddenly find there isn't any any water to drink, or the water to drink is bitter, so Moses gets its log, throws the log into the water, and the water turns sweet. So that was the first scene. In the second one, they're again in the wilderness, in the desert. This time they don't have anything to eat, and they're complaining and grumbling, which they do a lot in this story. Um, so this time God provides uh, uh, quail and manna from heaven uh, to feed them. Uh, and then in the final scene, you get, uh, again, they have an issue of water, they don't have enough to drink, and again, they start quarrel, and they get angry, and they basically kind of put Moses and God on trial and say, what are you going to do about this? And Moses, with his staff, strikes the rock, and water pours uh, out of it. Um, and that's where we find ourselves kind of picking up the story this week, as the, the, again, the people of God are, are moving on, whereas last week there were three different threats that they encountered, uh, the water, the food, and then the water again, uh, which were all, what happened was they all had these kind of basically internal rows and arguments between them. And then this week what we, have, what we see is there's another threat comes to the people of God, the Israelites, but this time it's from, from outside themselves. It's nothing to do with them. But an, an army comes to attack them. So we're going to read that story and pick it up now. So it says, then Amalek, Amalek, uh, Amalek is, a, is a people. It's not just one massive guy, although it sounds like someone's name, but it's a, a whole tribe of people, came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand up on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and her held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua 
overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for uh, this book, the Bible, your word to us. Um, We want to feed on it this morning. Uh, We want to let it feed our souls. We're to speak to the very depths of our being. God, we want you to to guide us and lead us in all of our life. And we want to know you in a richer, fuller, and deeper way. And we pray as we look at this passage this morning that you would indeed speak to us and challenge us, provoke our hearts, and draw us ever closer to you, we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, I guess the first thing that you might consider uh, when, you, when you come across, when you read this passage, uh, is that if you really think about it, it's quite a kind of, uh, quite a violent part of the Bible. You know, it's, uh, God says that he's going to utterly blot out the people of Amalek, uh, which maybe if you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus, or maybe you are a believer in Jesus, this may in a way, I kind of hope it does cause a bit of a doubt to spring up in your heart of why on earth would God want to utterly blot out a whole group of people? That sounds a bit, a bit violent and a bit angry. Um, you know, who is this God that we come to? Um, and it's important to understand the context of this story that, first of all, the Israelites, the people of God, have been in the wilderness. Uh, they don't have anywhere to live. They're just kind of traveling through the desert. They're weak and they're tired. They've had these challenges that we read about last week of not having any water, not any food. They're these kind of nomadic people. And then Amalek suddenly comes and attacks them, kind of hunts them down. Uh, and Amalek here, they're, they're, they're the enemy. They're the enemies of God's people. Um, and you could just think, well, surely they're just, they're just terrified. You know, the Israelites have suddenly kind of trespassed on their territory. They just want to get rid of them, saying, you know, keep off our land. Um, you know, and maybe God's just being a bit vicious here. The thing is, it's important to understand this isn't, it's not just a clash of peoples what's happening here. It's not just one group of people against another group of people. Um, what's happening here is there's, there's an attempt to thwart, to stop the plan of God. God's huge redemptive plan, his story of salvation that you read through the whole of scripture. Amalek, they're trying to put a spanner in the works. They're trying, just as God's people have just kind of stumbled through the Red Sea, God's just delivered them out in the very kind of, we were talking last week about how the second half of Exodus, the first half is almost like the birth of the people of Israel. The second half is their kind of infancy. They're just beginning to grow up. And the enemy is trying to just crush it and stop it before it really comes to life. There's a passage in uh, Deuteronomy, which is kind of helpful here. It says, remember, this is speaking back later to the people in the Bible. It says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail 
those who are lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. So this was a, this was a brutal, aggressive attack. It's like if you've ever seen one of those nature documentaries where the pack of hyenas come, and they, they focus on the, the weak of the herd. You know, the other cattle they let on go ahead, and they look for the weak ones, the young ones, the ones that are struggling, and they pick those off. This is what Amalek is doing here. They're attacking the people of God, but they're going after the weak and the vulnerable. They're trying to cause harm. They're trying to stop God's, God's plan. And in a sense, we're in a similar position that we have an enemy who likes to attack us and our weaknesses and find us where we're kind of, you could say, spiritually weak or spiritually faint and tries to take us out, tries to harm us. It's not a very popular subject to talk about, kind of, even for Christians, it scares them a little bit to talk in that kind of language, but, but it's true and it's important we understand what we're, what we're fighting against, what we're up against. In Brazil, I think it was, well, it was in Brazil, in September of 1987, there were two thieves who broke into an old medical institution and they stole a kind of an old, um, what was it, an old radiotherapy machine, or at least they stole part of a radiotherapy machine. They didn't know what it was, they just saw this thing in this disused building and thought, oh, that might be valuable, we'll, we'll take it. Uh, and they soon realized they didn't know what it was and they didn't know what to do with it. So they took it to, to like a scrapyard uh, to just try and sell it and make some money. So they sold it to this scrapyard. And the guys in the scrapyard noticed that this part of this old radiotherapy machine would glow in the dark. And they thought that was pretty cool. So they took part of it out of the machine, the bit that glowed, and one of them took it home. Uh, he just put it in a bag, took it on the bus home, and placed it on his his dining room table, and then he had his family round, like cousins and nieces, aunties and uncles, to look at this glowing, magical thing. Uh, now, it's actually a very sad story that in the end, 200 people ended up getting contaminated and four people died. And what happened was they, di they didn't know what they were dealing with. It's, this is nuclear waste. This is the biggest nuclear disaster that's ever happened outside of a nuclear facility. They just didn't know what it was. You know, you don't take a bit of nuclear waste and put it in a carrier bag and take it on a bus. You don't do that. And they just didn't know what they were dealing with. They didn't know what they had in front of them. And this thing, this toxic thing, polluted them and, and attacked them. And that's so often what happens to us. Is we don't realize that we're up against an enemy that is toxic and dangerous. We don't realize that when we're spiritually faint and weak, or the weaknesses in our lives that they get attacked, we don't know how to stand against these things, and we can stumble and fail in those moments. So we need to know that we're, we have an enemy that stands against us. It says in, a, in Ephesians 6, a famous passage in the Bible, if you know it, about the armor of God, but the armor of God is there for a reason. It says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil 
in the heavenly places. And the Bible here has to state really clearly that our battle isn't against flesh and blood, meaning it isn't against people around us. It has to say that because so often we think that it is and we get confused. But actually we have to recognize that there's, there's evil behind the scenes seeking to undermine relationships, seeking to attack you where you're weak, seeking to cause havoc and destruction. And, and we, can, we have to be careful here because you can think, ah, oh, yes, well, we need to engage in kind of spiritual warfare and we start to think of the devil either in a kind of cartoon character sort of way, he's got kind of red horns and a tail, or we think of kind of horror movies and have a kind of quite gruesome picture of this evil that's going to suddenly appear in a street corner on a dark evening and attack us. Whereas actually it's not really like that at all. Um, primarily, the spiritual warfare is it's an, an internal battle, not an external one. It's not about things out there. It's about the accusation that comes to our hearts. Because that's what, that's what the, one of the names for the, the devil in the Bible is Satan. And Satan means um, accuser or adversary, someone who comes and stands against us. But then it says in Revelation 12 that the accuser has been thrown down, that Jesus has won the ultimate battle. But we have to be aware that what he does is his work primarily is to come and condemn you, to tell you that you're not good enough, that the things that you've done mean that God no longer loves you, that God's decided that he doesn't like you anymore and he's going to cause you pain. The enemy comes and accuses the people around you. He says to you, well, that person did that because they were trying to cause you harm. He tries to... That, that's why you ever notice so many relationships, uh, there are so many issues in so many of your relationships and often they come down to communication. That They've said one thing, but you've heard something else. And they've heard something you've said, but heard it slightly differently. You know, that happens all the time, isn't it? Just miscommunications. And often that's just the devil at work. Because he comes to condemn us and say, no, they said that, but what they actually meant was this. Believe this instead about them. And all the time we have an enemy that's trying to undermine these relationships, trying to cause destruction, sow seeds of doubt about God, about other people. And we're called to to a battle, we call to stand against that. God's given us this armor that it talks about in Ephesians 6 to stand against the schemes of the enemy. And that's what happens here in this passage in response to Amalek's attack. Moses sends Joshua and some men out to fight. He says, right guys, grab some swords, let's go and, go and have a big, big barney, it's time to sort them out. Which if you're familiar with the Exodus story of where we've come from, it's a bit, it's a bit of a change. It's some, something has shifted here because in, in Exodus 14, when God's leading them out of the, the Red Sea, it says this, there's a point where the Israelites are really afraid because the Egyptians are pursuing them. They've sent out this army to attack them. And Moses says to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only 
have to be silent. So you see, something's changed here. That back at the Red Sea, God literally says to them, do nothing. You know, just shut up. I'm going to sort this out for you. Whereas now, something's, something's changed. And God says, right, Joshua, you, you guys are going to go out and fight now. There's a battle that you need to engage in. It's your turn to get into the fight. And you think, is, is God just, has he had enough? He's a few to cut some bruises. He's just had enough now. He's just going to take a back seat and leave it up to us to get in that, in that battle. What's, what's happening here? We have to understand what's happened in the story is that God has now delivered them out from Egypt. There's a, a, something has changed fundamentally now that the Exodus story, the main big moment has taken place, that God's delivered them. He's saved them. This salvation plan has begun. And that's very much true for us. There's a great quote by uh, C.H. Spurgeon, who's an English preacher from a few hundred years ago, that we now, we can fight not as slaves against a master, but as free men against a foe. Whereas when they were in Egypt, they were slaves and they needed God to rescue them from the oppressive master, Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Now they're free from that. And that's exactly the state that we find ourselves in. If you're a believer in Jesus, you've been saved, you've been redeemed. You've been drawn out into his purposes. And now you're no longer just a slave fighting against evil masters because Jesus has won the victory. You're a free man or a free woman standing against a foe an accuser who's doing whatever he can to ruin God's plan, but ultimately, you're not under his lordship anymore. You're under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You have a new savior, a new master now. He's won the fight. Because before, before you were a believer in Jesus, the Bible says that you were effectively spiritually dead and dead people make pretty useless soldiers. <laughs> you can't fight if you're lying on the ground as a corpse. But now we've been made alive in Christ, so we can, because we're alive in him now. We're no longer spiritually dead. You're as spiritually alive right now as you will ever be, filled with his power, and God sent you out to do his work. And we are now, as those who are alive in Christ, we get to fight any wickedness that we see before us, whether sin or the enemy that we see in our lives. Because we're not fighting to achieve something, but we're living out what God has already done. It says in Timothy that we fight the good fight of the faith. There's something for us to do now. So the important question is, how, how do we fight? Because well, we see here that we, um, first of all, we, we can pray because Moses goes up onto the hill. Now, I think it would be a bit of a stretch to say that what Moses is doing on the hill when he's raising his hands and then his hands go down and Aaron and her have to help his hands go up again. I don't know whether Moses was praying or not. I don't think the passage is very clear on what Moses is actually doing with his arms. But we know elsewhere from Scripture that prayer is a powerful weapon that God's given us. It's something important that God's given us to do. And Spurgeon, again, who I mentioned a moment ago, he said this, well, his biographer said this in the book he wrote about him. He said, Spurgeon did not make 
the gathering of a crowd, his first interest, in view of the spiritual warfare in which the Christian is placed, he was concerned, first of all, that his people learn truly to pray. And that's such a helpful thing for us to hear as a church. We could get so intoxicated, well, let's just keep growing this thing. Let's just make it as big as we can. We could feel happy that, oh, there's just more and more people here. Yes, we've done well. But this guy who built a massive church in London 150, 200 years ago and then planted churches all over London and the UK, he was never trying to do that primarily. He was helping people to grow in Christ. And he saw that fundamentally important to that was people learning how to pray because they're in a battle and they need to learn how to pray. And that's true for us. That, that, that's one of my primary jobs and for those who are leading this church is we want to teach ourselves and all of us what it is to really pray and to seek God and to go after him again and again and again. And I don't mean, because you can get a bit confused when you talk about spiritual warfare and prayer to think, well, that means I need to somehow be kind of praying down evil forces or that's not what I'm talking about. If anyone tells you to do that, then I'll be very cautious because that's I'm not sure that's a very clever thing to do. But really, spiritual warfare and prayer is about, it's about asking God for help for you, first of all. Saying, God, I need, I've got this battle against this certain sin in my life. Help me. This, this relationship I'm in is, is struggling. I'm, I'm, I've got all these negative accusations that keep coming into my head about this person. You know, help me to think the best of them. That's what grace does in your life. It helps you to think the best of people. Let that come and saturate in. It's about worship. It's about seeking God. That's what spiritual warfare and prayer is fundamentally about. It's just coming to Jesus again and again. And that's what we do. Uh, that's what we want to see happen in your lives individually, but it's something we, we do together. So once a month, um, every month, we, we, we cancel our, our midweek community groups. On so the first Wednesday, Wednesday every month, we come together to pray and that's one of the most important meetings in the life of this church because we know what Spurgeon knows, that we're all in a battle and we need to pray. We need to come to God in prayer again and again and again. And we will keep doing that. There's a group of us guys who meet here every Wednesday morning. We get up early, it's half six and it's dark and we're grumpy and we nick down as much coffee as we can and then we pray because we believe it's just the best way to start the day. It's so important. Joe and I, we get up every week on a Thursday morning, we pray together, and often again, it's us sitting on the sofa, kind of just thinking, one of us is going to open our mouths in a minute, but oh, is it going to be me or Joe first? Who's going to get there? Oh, thank you for the Bible, it's great. You know, it's those sort of prayers, but it's so important. You know, we come to God and it, it does so much good to our marriage. It helps us so much in our parenting, everything we need to do. It's just we do that again and again because it's so, so vital Sometimes that's why prayer is so hard. Sometimes that's why when it comes to a Wednesday, first Wednesday of the month, of why you have a billion different excuses pop into your head of why you don't need to go to the prayer meeting. It's because it's so important. You need to not listen to those things, but think, no, I'm going to fight for this because this is important for you and it's important for us as the church to pray. Secondly, what happens in this story is that they remember, they remember that uh, 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 Moses decides 
that um, I didn't write down the verse here. Did it, is it going to appear magically on the screen? Yeah, there we go. It says, the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial. says, his after the battle has taken place. Write this as a memorial, as a reminder in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Um, Samuel Johnson said, we need more often to be reminded than informed. You need more often to be reminded than informed. And we live in the kind of the information age where there's so much information to take place. Some people did some research uh, and they called it the knowledge doubling curve that before, before 1900, uh, the amount of knowledge in the world doubled roughly every 100 years. So every 100 years, the amount of knowledge that was accessible to humanity then doubled. But it's been getting quicker and quicker. So since 19 45, I think it is, for the end of the Second World War, the amount of knowledge in the world doubled once every 25 years. But in 2013, when they did this research again, they discovered that the amount of knowledge they reckon doubles, this is five years ago, but was doubling once every 13 months, the amount of knowledge in the world. But they reckon in the future, with this whole kind of internet of things that they talk about and all this sort of stuff that I don't really understand. They reckon the amount of knowledge accessible to us will double once every 12 hours. I don't know how they figured that out. <laughs> they obviously had to read a lot of knowledge to come to that assumption, I don't know. But the point is, if, if you base your confidence on how much you know, then you'll always be disappointed because you can always know more. It's not, saying, it's not that knowledge is bad, but in our society, we believe that knowledge is the key to progress. And where things are going wrong is because they don't know enough. They're not, they're not informed enough, so we just need to teach people more and more and more. And you could say that was probably true of the story that we were talking about earlier with these Brazilian thieves. You know, if they'd known, and all the people at the scrapyard and all the family, if they'd known this was nuclear waste, they wouldn't have treated that way. So knowledge was an issue there. But you could also say, if these two thieves were remembering and following Jesus Christ, then they probably wouldn't have broken into the place in the first place and stolen the thing. So remembering is so, is so important to us. And the thing is, we've got to be careful because even when it comes to Christianity and how we understand the Bible, there's so much that you can read, and you should read. I love reading, I read loads. But what's, it's knowing God is much more important than knowing about God. You can fill your brain with all sorts of books and literature and information, but unless in your heart you're seeking to know God, it's only ever going to get you so far. It's only ever going to serve in a small way. We need to be those that are seeking to know him. And it's fascinating in this story when it says that Moses uh, uh, recites this book, this memory to Joshua is a really fascinating detail in the story because I'd, if I was Joshua, I might have been a bit annoyed at this moment. He's like, Moses, like, leave it out, I was there. Like, Joshua went into battle with this sword. He won the battle. Why, he doesn't need Moses to come and remind him about it. <laughs> He's like, I was there, all right? You know, I gave them a bloody nose, like, leave me alone. So why does particular, does it, does it mention Joshua? What's happening here? Well, the Exodus story, you see, as you will have noticed in previous weeks, Often this story is looking back to what God's already done 
It's often looking forward as well to what God is, is going to do. And the people of God, they're heading there on this journey towards their promised land where God's going to take them into the land of Canaan. That's where they're going to. And what you find in, later on in the story, in the book of Numbers, uh, chapter 13 and 14, they, they get to the, 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 the border of the promised land and they're ready for their kind of imminent um, invasion, imminent arrival in where God sent them to go. And then first of all, they send some spies into the promised land to go and check it out, you know, to see what, what's there. Um, and they, the spies go in, and most of them come back with a negative report. They say, well, there's, there's giants in the land. And they list off this whole list of armies and peoples that they, they need to be afraid of. And one of those people they list off is, is Amalek. It's one of the reasons they doubt whether they should go into the promised land is because Amalek is there. But one of the spies who goes in, actually a few of them, but one in particular, doesn't give a negative report. And he says, no, what are you talking about? Of course God's with us. And that's Joshua. He appears later in the story. He remembers. He says, I'm, I'm not afraid of Amalek. Because God said he was going to utterly block them out. And I, not only was I there and I gave them a bloody nose and sorted them out, but God told us. He wrote it down in this book. He told us we were going to win. So why are we afraid? He, he remembered. And this book, the Bible, this is given to you as a, as a memory. As, not just as a dead memorial, but as a living story that will remind the very depths of your soul of who God is, of what he's done for us. So use it. Remember, so many issues in your life have basically come down to you not remembering the faithfulness of God. You get caught in all sorts of traps and difficulties and worries and doubts and anxieties and fear. And sometimes you just need to wake yourself up and know God's good. This book tells me that he's good, that he's faithful. We need to remind our souls of that, of who he is and what he's done for us, what he will do for us. That's the second way we fight is to remember. And then the third way is to, what happens next in the story is, or what's happened before in the story even, is to hold up weary arms. Um, and it's important to Again, I don't really know what's happening in the story where Moses has to sit on this rock and his hands go up and they win, his hands go down and they start losing um, and Aaron and her have to come in and hold up his hands. There's a really helpful principle here that as a church, that's so much of what community life is in the church is just holding each other up through seasons of difficulty, through seasons of challenge, is to say, you know, I don't have all the answers. You know, I, I don't know how that's going to work out in your life. I'm sorry, I can't, you know, I can't solve that one for you. But I'm going to stand with you. I'm going to walk on the journey with you. I mean, how important is that? So often that's all, all we really need. is We don't need people... You know what it's like when, when you've got an issue and someone comes and tries to give you all the answers and it's kind of a bit exhausting. Like, oh, you know, I actually kind of already know what the answers are. You don't need to come and shout at me. But what really helps is when a brother or sister just comes and puts their arm around you. It says, oh, I don't have a lot of answers, but should we try and work this out together? Let's try and solve this thing together. That's so important, so valuable. And that's what we can do as a family together is to hold up weary arms. 
I read some, something on Twitter this week that somebody wrote. They said, accountability, so sharing problems and issues of your life, should feel less like Pharisees policing sin and more like Aaron and her holding up weary arms. That's so important. You know, as Christians, we need brothers and sisters sometimes to be accountable to you, to stand against the schemes of the devil, to say, these areas in my life, I'm weak in these parts. I, I, need, I need help. And, and when you say that, that can feel a vulnerable, it is a vulnerable place to put yourself into, to say to someone else, I've got these issues, please help me. But you're not saying, okay, here's an opportunity for you now to condemn me. You're saying, here's an opportunity for you to, to, just to hold up my arms, just to walk with me. That's what it is to be accountable to someone, to have people who are going to stand with you through all the, all the battles of life. But obviously, it's not just our battle, it's, it's God's battle. Because what I don't want to leave you is to leave you thinking that somehow you're supposed to be like Joshua in the fight, picking up your sword and going into battle, or you're supposed to be like Moses, lifting your arms to pray, or like Aaron and her holding up the weary arms. Although those are all important, that's not actually primarily what this passage is about. I wouldn't be faithful to preaching the passage if that's what I told you. Because the central detail in this passage, how, what the, how the story builds around it, it isn't about Joshua, it's not about the fight or the battle at all, because it's fascinating. It doesn't, it doesn't give us any story about the battle. We don't know how many men were fighting. We don't know really where the battle took place, you know, where the battlefield was. We know where the hill was. We don't know where the battle took place. We don't know what machinery they used. All the interesting details of military history, none of them are here. It's because the passage isn't interested in those things. Actually, what it does give us a lot of detail about it is what's happening up on the hill where Moses is. The kind of the battle on the ground is sort of incidental. The action is really taking place up on the hill where Moses and Aaron and her are. That's where the battle is really happening. Although the battle is being fought by Joshua down on the ground, it's won by God up on the hill. That's just true of the battles we face as well. We can sometimes feel like we're getting our hands all bloody and we're in the the thick of the fight and it's painful and it's gritty. We feel like we've just got to really press through and win this battle, but we're actually doing very little. The one doing all the work is God. Because the focus of this story is actually weirdly, it's, it's not even just on Moses, it's on Moses' hands. It mentions his hands, I think, seven times in this passage. When the Bible repeats things over and over again in a short pace of time, it's trying to draw your attention to it. It keeps talking about Moses' hands. You think, what is with his hands? What's going on here? But the thing is, it's it's saying that what happens when Moses is raising his arms in prayer is the same as what happened uh, in chapter 9, where God sends this plague of hail, and Moses holds up his hands, and the hail comes. And what happens in chapter 10, when the plague of locusts comes, and again, Moses' hands are involved. The same as the Red Sea, where Moses' hands, he picks up the staff, and the sea parts. The focus in all those stories about is Moses sometimes with his hands, sometimes holding his staff, they're saying that, and all those things are symbolic of God's power and authority. So it's the same in this story. Moses holds up his staff, and that's a symbol of God's authority, God's power, God's victory. It's saying to us that the same God who did all those plagues in that story, who delivered the people, the same power that annihilated the Egyptians, 
that undermine Pharaoh is the same God that's winning this fight against Amalek. It's the same power and authority taking place. Everything, and actually um, prayer is a really good, good parallel for us because the, the power in prayer has nothing to do with you and everything to do with God. And yet we're still called to pray. Because we could think, well, if it's all down to God anyway, why bother? But if you read the Bible, read the New Testament, and again and again and again, we're called to pray, to pray consistently, to pray without ceasing. Those, that's the language that the Bible uses. Although the power is wonderfully with God, which means it doesn't matter what kind of week you've had, it doesn't mean how good you feel or how holy you feel, you come to God and the power's with him. But yet we're still commanded again to pray and to pray and to pray. It's the same with this battle, this fight. That Joshua's down there fighting on the ground and he's called to, the, to do that. He's supposed to do that, but yet the power is with God. And this is just another act. It's just another scene in God's grand redemption plan, his salvation plan. And it, it won't be stopped. God will win the battle. He will win through the fight. He won't be pushed around he will what God has started in your life he'll complete it he'll he'll finish it and he's at work within you and ultimately he already has won the victory he already has defeated the enemy and this scene concludes with perhaps what is a bit of a maybe a peculiar um, description to you where it talks about the Lord as my as my banner it's a funny phrase. But what it's suggesting is that when Moses is holding up his staff in his hands over the battle, that that would be like an, an army going into fight. If you've seen any kind of Hollywood movies about you know, war movies, an army will go in with, with like a banner, like a standard that they'll lead off, in, like a Roman army would have it at the, at the front of the fight. And people would look to that and they would say, well, the, our standard, our banner is still there, so we'll keep on fighting. And when, when the guy carrying it got knocked down, someone else would pick it up so that they knew that they were still in the fight, that they were still in the battle. And God's telling us that, that, he's, that in that battle that Joshua and the people could look up at, at Moses holding up the banner, the standard, and say, no, we're still in the fight. We're still there, they keep fighting. But now it says, the Lord is my banner. And for each of us, we get to look at, at Jesus, the cross of Calvary, and know that victory has taken place. That's our banner, that's our standard. That's the thing we look to, we know, yes, victory has come because of what Jesus has done for us. But ultimately, this great victory has, has taken place. It says in, uh, no, that's not Revelation, that's Colossians. It says somewhere in, here we go. It says in Revelation, talking about Jesus, it says, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. It's the same kind of language that Jesus holds up this staff. This time it's not just a frail thing made of wood, it's, it's built of iron, it's solid, it's one of victory. Saying so now because of what Jesus has done, victory has taken place. And he holds up the banner, the standard to say, victory has come to us. And then it does go on then to say, what well, says earlier in Colossians, Jesus, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them. 
It says in 1 John 3, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. We know that in Jesus Christ, ultimate victory has taken place. And that might cause questions, because you think, well, why do I still struggle with these sins? Why is this still an issue in my life? Why is this still an issue in the world around us? Why are these things still taking place? Why can we still see evil if Jesus has won? Well, the enemy's defeated, yet he's still trying to cause some havoc on the way down. It's like if you see in a movie where the kind of the dead guy gets shot, like fatally wounded, and yet he's still lashing out, still trying to cause some damage just before he finally falls and the game is over. Well, that's what's happening here. Satan's been defeated, and he's still going to try and cause a few problems. But ultimately, the victory is, is won, and you can be assured of that. And the passage goes on and finishes you know, where it says... In verse 14, that God is going to promise to utterly blot out Amalek. And that, that, you could read on in the Bible, and that happens. In 1 Samuel, Saul goes to do it because God tells him to, but Saul mucks it up because he has a habit of doing that. And he, he kills most of them, but he preserves the king and some of their wealth. Uh, so then, a few chapters later, David has to go and finish the job, and he, he blots them out, that they're gone. And it's the same thing that's true for us, is that, because it, it, it finishes by saying, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. It's God saying to them, ultimately, I will have the ultimate final victory, but they're still going to cause you a problem for a little while, but then eventually they'll be gone forever. And that's what we need to know, that ultimately Jesus has won. It doesn't mean there's not going to be issues in your life and pain and difficulty, but ultimately he's, he's won. And he will have a final victory where Satan will be wiped out forever, where the sins and issues in your life that hound you and can, will be gone. And now we fight not as, as slaves trying to defeat an evil master, but as free men and women against an evil foe. Someone who's trying to cause us a few difficulties, but ultimately... We know that he's one. We know that we're free now of this wonderful liberty because of who Jesus is, what he's done for us. Let me pray, and then we'll worship together. Jesus, we thank you for this wonderful redemption plan. Just like the Israelites, you led us out. You've drawn us out of our uh, uh, oppression and our imprisonment to sin, we were, we were dead. <laughs> we were completely useless, spiritually dead, but we're now alive in Christ. You've drawn us out, and you've drawn us out to draw us into your plans and your purposes in fellowship and relationship with you. It doesn't mean that life isn't sometimes hard, sometimes horribly, painfully hard, but yet we can come and remember your faithfulness and your love for us. And even in seasons where it feels like you're not speaking, in seasons of silence and difficulty, we can look back on your past faithfulness, we can look to the cross as our banner, as our standard of victory, and we can also look forward to know that you will have a, a final victory, that we're now free men and women. And we want to stand in the good of that, in the good of your grace. Thank you, Jesus.